Hey folks, and welcome to the Typology Podcast, the show in which we explore the story of youth through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are thrilled to have you here with us today. So many exciting things going on. Of course, you know, Ian's book is going to drop next month. That's exciting. And we have some really great news today. His brand new course, Discovering You, an introduction to the Enneagram is available. So you can go to typologyinstitute.com slash discovering you. I've said this before, but this course really is a response to so many of you asking for an introductory course. So you'll want to check that out and you'll be hearing more about that later as well. Hey, listen, we have a fantastic show for you today. These two guests we have today are sweethearts. Oh my gosh, I fell in love with them. Alice and Bob Freiling, Enneagram 4, Wing 3, and 5, Wing 6. They've been married for 50 years, and they drop so many pearls of wisdom on us today. It's just unbelievable. You will want to take notes during this interview. I'm so glad that you're here. We love our Typology audience. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Allison, Bob, Freiling, Enneagram 4 with a three-wing, Enneagram 5 with a six-wing. Welcome to Typology. We're glad to be here. Indeed. Well, I, uh, I have honestly been looking forward to this podcast all week long. Uh, Ooh, it's Friday. <laughs> I know, right? It's Friday. I'm finally getting my, my wishes coming true. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Bob and Alice uh, have been married for 50 years. Woohoo! Wow, right? 50 years. Uh, and they have a long, long history uh, and passion for spiritual formation. Alice has written this amazing new book aging faithfully the holy invitation of growing older and and i want all of our folks to hear this before we jump in this is the first time we've ever spoken about uh the enneagram and getting older and the presumption might be on the front end that uh this is for older listeners i'm going to check out and here's what i realized as I was reading the book, and as I mentioned earlier, I read it front to back this week. I finished the epilogue this morning, in fact, um, that this show is for people of all ages. And, and here is why. Um, if you're not in the demographic, let's say between 55 or 60 plus, uh, this is a great program today for folks who have parents mm -hmm. that's right <laughs> and and understanding the journey that they are either entering or are on and uh, how they can best accompany them in in that journey i found that just remarkably uh helpful as i as i was reading it uh, as i think back as i think upon my own circumstances at the moment i want to start off though of course starting to talk about the enneagram alice you wrote a wonderful book another book of yours that i have read all the way through mirror for the soul a christian guide to the enneagram i want to just start in the logical place what was your introduction to the enneagram well, I was introduced to the Enneagram about 30 years ago, and it started out because I was very taken with Myers-Briggs. I mean, I'm a number four, so it's in my job description to want to understand what's going on inside people. Right, exactly. Myers-Briggs was incredibly helpful to me. And then someone came along and 
said there was this thing called the Enneagram. And I figured, well, if numbers are good, I mean, if letters are good, then numbers must be good. At least it's another way to cook chicken. So I went to an Enneagram workshop with Jerry Wagner in Chicago, who teaches the Enneagram at Loyola. Um, and I sat there as he was going through these spaces. I think he, he didn't start out with a heart triad. Maybe he did what you did and start out with the gut triad. But I just thought, nah, I don't know about this. And then he got to the number four. And I know a lot of people take a long time to figure out what they were. But his presentation and where I was in life, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is me. Mm. Then he got to the number five. <laughs> and I said, there's my husband. <laughs> and I, I started thinking about my family, my neighbors, and it just seemed, it was so accurate and so helpful. Um, so that really launched me into my own foray into the Enneagram. I like that foray. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that? I did. Yes. I hate to do a word play, but it just, it just tripped me right Oh, away. that's right. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, uh, Alice, as I was reading Aging Faithfully, if I hadn't known you were an Enneagram 4, I knew in the first three pages you were an Enneagram 4. Of course. (laughs) We know each other, eh? (laughs) Yes, we do. And of course, the tone of the book is is a very four tone. Um, Your comfort with uh, addressing a difficult topic of growing older, the specter of death, these are hard spaces for lots of numbers to deal with, and they need a guide who is a four to help them move into mm. those, dare I say, darker spaces, you know, challenging spaces. And so I just really saw you uh, employing your gifts so beautifully. Mm. Well, writing that book um, is probably, well, certainly in the, my current life, it's the most life-giving experience I have. I mean, it was it was exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Or there are some days when being a four doesn't feel exciting, but writing the book was very exciting. And most days, I think being a four is wonderful. I like that. Yeah, me too. I like it a lot. My mm-hmm. wife says sometimes a little too much. However, <laughs> Bob, you're an Enneagram five. And uh, how did you respond when Alice came home and she said, I have figured you out? Uh, did you? <laughs> And you read it. You read the five. Uh, did you respond as enthusiastically to the Enneagram? Look at Alice's. <laughs> Alice she is shaking her head. No. Tell me what I was. <laughs> right. But she gave me some books. <laughs> and I think I read three books on the Enneagram. And it was through, which is a number five thing to do. Mm-hmm. And just collect all that information. And as I read through that, it became very clear that I identified as a number five. Uh, both on the positive end of things, of identifying with wisdom and liking knowledge, and um, mm-hmm. but also negatively uh, being overly analytical and critical and uh, compulsive of gathering information or whatever. So it just resonated with me in terms of gifts as well as in terms of struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice, as a four and you know a longtime student of the Enneagram, now into the years of wisdom. Um, what was it about fours or what is it about fours that you love and that present great challenges to you? Well, it's hard to, I mean, I always, I always find myself answering a question currently. So I will answer a question 
like today or this week or whatever. I mean, in, in my current experience, um, we moved to Colorado to be near my daughter and her children uh, for three or four years ago. Um, and when our, when our grandchildren were born many years ago, I realized right away, and just kept saying, I'm not a coochie coo grandma. I mean, I don't like to babysit. I don't like sports. I don't like to read books out loud. So what good am I? Um, and I did find, and now as our grandchildren have gotten older, I'm finding that being a number four really, really helps me in relating to all of our, our two daughters and our son-in-laws and our grandchildren. And it's because I just want to get to know them better. Mm-hmm. We have a granddaughter who's 13, and I almost never get bored when I'm with her. I just, I, I ask her questions, and I want to hear what she has to say. And then we, our grandson, when this was actually a few years ago, he was, he signed up for something where every month you got a loot box, which was a box full of loot. And I don't know how much he paid per box, but he was so excited. He said, Grandma, Grandma, my loot box is here. And somebody else sitting down in one of the other spaces on the Enneagram would think, you know, this is really a lot of junk. But I looked at it and I thought, this is all about the stuff he loves. So we went through every item and he talked to me about why he liked it. And, well, I I don't think Bob would have wanted to do that. Um, (laughs) And I don't want to babysit. Um, So being a number four, I... I can do things that I love to do, and it seems to be loving to my family, and that's great. Mm, That's wonderful. I don't like my, well, the two things that come to mind, I don't like my self-doubt, and I don't like my Mm -hmm. over-responsibility. I feel like to be a good grandma, I have to meet all the needs of their parents and the grandchildren and Bob, and I feel really very, I mean, I really do feel, sometimes I feel despair because I can't meet all their needs. Mm, what's the driver and, there? What is the driver? Yeah. What is the driver there? Like what's the, what's behind that? If I love them, then I should be able to help them in every way possible. Um, and I mean, only God can do that to begin with. That's a spiritual <laughs> false, spiritual lie if I believe that. Um, but I also think I don't feel good about myself. If I'm lying on the sofa reading a book and I know that, you know, they would like me to be doing something for them, even though they're great about it, they understand. My daughter's a number four too, and she really does understand this. But that was that was a rite of passage for me to mm. be in I actually started calling it the discipline of irresponsibility. Mm. It's so important to me to learn that I was not responsible for the world. Mm. So I lie down on the sofa and read a book, and then I have a little more energy to go out and go shopping with my granddaughter, for instance. Yeah, I w- I'm reminded that when fours are under stress, that they go to the low side of two. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that sounds a little bit of what you're describing. Is that is that right? Yeah. Oh, yes. And I have a number two daughter. Mm. And a number four daughter and a number two daughter. And there are days when I just think, you know, where is my number two daughter when I need her right now Mm. to be doing something (laughs) that I don't have the energy or the inclination to do? So, yeah, it's really been true. So, Bob, I'm going to get to you in a moment, but I I do want to just uh, 
uh, pick on one thing with with Alice, and that is I have this. Um, how do I want to say it? This uh, theory that Enneagram fours have the second loudest inner critic on the Enneagram. Who's the first ones? One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but cause fours can be, I mean, that's my experience is that that inner critic can be absolutely brutal. And I know that you address that a little bit in the book, aging faithfully. Um, how have you navigated and perhaps, um, or how do you currently navigate that inner critic as a four? Well, in an odd sort of way, when I, the number four people that I'm close to, and when I see how um, difficult it is for them to navigate it, that helps me take initiative. It speaks back to me and says, you know, you have the same problem. So you need to work on this. Um, pro the word recently that has, it keeps coming up in our conversation, is holy detachment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and another word that sometimes comes in spiritual literature is holy indifference. And quite frankly, you know, I can't go with holy indifference. I mean, I know I can't get there. But I do find that somehow some kind of transformation has happened in my life in the last 10 years so that I can see and hear those I love struggling. And I have a sense of holy detachment. And I've actually talked to Bob about that, a lot about that, because, you know, I don't want you to think I don't care, because I really, <laughs> really do care. And then my self-doubt comes in. I said, is it okay with you if I don't care? <laughs> 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 he's actually encouraged me in my journey toward holy detachment. So he's a big help on that. <laughs> yeah. So, Bob, you're a five. Um, and what is it that you love most? And what is it that has been a challenge to you? Well, I do enjoy knowledge. I enjoy reading and thinking and strategizing. And those were all very valuable things when I was in an executive position during my work life. Um, I think what um, has been a challenge is how to use that information, whether it's just for accumulation of knowledge uh, or if it's to help others. Um, one of the things I've been discovering, particularly since retirement, that instead of always thinking about the future, always planning ahead, I mean, last night I was leading a discussion. I had I have a faith and politics group where we try to get together and look at biblical issues and affecting culture. And in preparation for that, I read five articles and two books. Mm. And um, this is an hour and a half meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing that. But the danger in that is then to control people by the information. We're really, it's an insecurity and a fear that somehow I'm not prepared or I won't have the answers to any question that somebody will raise. Um, so what has been challenging to me, in fact, Alice was the first one that pointed out that for number five, the inclination is to move in and up in, internally and into my mind. Mm -hmm. and so she used the phrase, why don't you work down and out? more into your gut and more relationally into the other two triads. And so my mantra right now is um, to live in the present, in the presence of Jesus, to be a present for others. And that helps me connect the spiritual dynamic with um, 
being connected with other people and not just with my own mind. I mean, I could enjoy life just thinking by myself. Right. <laughs> um, but that's very selfish, and uh, I don't think that's what God calls us to. Um, in fact, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes I've never heard preached on, but it's Ecclesiastes 7.16. It says, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Mm. And um, I have found that when I'm overly wise, overly prepared, it can become self-destructive because it, it distances me from other people. Yes. Wow. Can I interrupt for just a minute and mm -hmm. say that one of the things that I've seen with Bob, and I think this relates to both the Enneagram and aging, is amazing transformation. Um, and as we've gotten older and Bob has retired and he's had to let go of some of the opportunities in his life, one of the, one of the things that he does in loving my, our family is he's the one that picks up our granddaughter at school every day. And that's an hour's worth of time. And for a number five, an hour is a lot. That's an investment. Mm -hmm. So, and he does that so graciously. And he comes home and he'll say, oh, yeah, Elizabeth was really fun to talk to today. So I, mean, I look at that and I think, whoa, that is a far, that's, he's come a long way since being an executive leader. Mm. Um, that, I mean, it was good to be an executive leader when he was, but to let go of that when there's no longer that opportunity and as he's aged, um, I think he's really learned to love in a number five way. Mm. Wow. Bob, you know, um, as Alice was speaking, um, you became clearly emotional. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and, and I'm just curious what 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 did her words trigger in you and what 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 is that? Um you're right. <laughs> Being uh, both observant um and discerning. I cheer up when things are deeply personal. Mm. And I think that is a um much more a true self than just the ideas or just the facts. Mm. So connecting that way um, is actually very helpful. Mm. Um, even though I, I, I'm embarrassed by it, but yet that's, that's sort of my soul willing up, I think, mm. trying to get out. Wow. That is my soul trying to get out, right? Mm. I think that's so beautifully put and, and thanks for your willingness to be vulnerable. And to, I just love when I see a five and I think this is the one of the gifts too of getting older is you cry more. Mm. I mean, I just, that has oh, been my experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far so good. It looks like you've made yeah. some incredible strides in that regard. So that's, I think that's beautiful. Can I say just a couple of things? One, I love that it just shows you the power. I love um, Alice, the empathy that you had uh, to recognize that he has a limited um, amount of resources to give in a day and uh, the value that you placed on him picking up your granddaughter. I mean, I just love that expression between the two of you. And then the other thing I wanted to say, just backing up a minute, I thought that was great advice for a four wing three to give to a five to go down in your gut, mm -hmm. you know, really encouraging him to not go upstairs, but really to move down in his gut, which uh, a four might go, get in your heart more, you know? Yes, yes. But the fact that she was like telling him to move to strength, you know? Right. Really powerful. You know, in the new my new book, I just I have a new book coming out in December called "The Story of You," and 
one of the things in that book that I, I, I quote James Joyce, it's a, a line from his book, uh, from Dubliners. And he, in it, he describes the character, Mr. Duffy, uh, as a, a man who lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I think that describes a five so perfectly. And so the part of the journey of the five is to get into the gut, right? It is to get back into the body, mm -hmm. uh, lest they they fall into the trap of becoming, you know, a brain on a stick, you mm -hmm. know, as one five described it to me. Yeah. Um, so wonderful, wonderful advice, Anthony. Thanks for for pointing that out. Mm -hmm. You know, you've raised this idea of the true self and false self, and this has been a major theme in my life uh, in work. Um, I, uh, when I was 28, I was, I was first introduced to Thomas Merton at 28. And, and I remember sitting in the back of St. Catherine of Siena church mm. in, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut and, um, mm. reading chapter five of new seeds of contemplation, where of course Merton talks about really dives deeply into this theme of the true self and false self. And he's really the, the pioneer of this discussion around true self and false self. I, I want to talk about it because I want to know from your perspective what that is, because it's a very difficult topic for, for people to understand and how the Enneagram can help people realize or move toward closer toward their true self. I in a way, it's easier to describe the false self than yes. the true self. <laughs> so let me say that um, uh, the cliff notes of that would probably be for me that the true self is the person that God made us to be with the gifts that we have. Um, and out of the true self, we bear the fruits of the spirit. So that's, but it's really the false self that I find in my own life is the most helpful to learn about. And what other people seem to say, the false self to me is the person that I either think I should be or that I wish I were. Um, and one, this sort of overlapped for me when I was writing the book on the Enneagram, because I did a few little interviews with various people in various spaces, they are types. Um, and I interviewed a very mature um, woman who's a number one. And one of the questions I asked was what you asked here. You know, what What do you like about being a number one and what do you not like about being a number one? And she came up to me after church one day and she just said, I can't believe it. I never thought there was anything good about a number one. So there was something about her false self that just kept saying, you aren't good enough, you aren't good enough, you aren't good enough. Um, but I think that's a huge gift of the Enneagram to help us recognize our false self. And it, the false self tells us lies. I mean, when Jesus said, Satan is the great deceiver, the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. So my sense in my life, I can only really speak for myself, but I believe a lot of lies, and those are lies from my false self. Um, yes, it's the, it's the egoic mind, right? It's, <laughs> it's that uh, part of us that is uh, wanting to get others to... Um, prioritize our priorities. Yeah. Mm. And I think, um, you know, in this new book that I've put together, I, I was thinking about how the unconscious motivation of each type is a story that is in direct opposition to the story of God and grace. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. It's like uh, you don't need to be perfect to have a sense of mastery and control in the world. That The gospel doesn't say that. The gospel doesn't say that you need to help others in order to be loved. And I could go through the list, of course, of all the unconscious motivations of, of each of these types. But there are stories that are um, they're, they're false stories. And of course, when you're living in a false story, you will be it's very difficult to become a true self in a false story. Mm. Yes. And. It, I mean, the Enneagram does such a good job of uncovering our blind spots. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's sometimes when I I just feel unsettled or disconnected from myself, and then all of a sudden I I'll find myself saying, "You are really acting like a number four. Just get on with it." Right. Know? Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm believing the lies of the number four space. Mm-hmm. I also be inclined to say that to Bob, which isn't always the best thing for me about being number five. That's right. not always the best thing to do. But. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we have a marriage here, one foot in the headspace, one foot in the heart space, uh, two numbers that are um, uh, see the world, process life and respond to it very differently. You've been married for 50 years. How have you navigated the differences? Do you want to go? Well, one of the things I've appreciated so much about Alice is that truth is extremely important to her. Mm. In fact, Alice means truth. And so when she speaks about the the distinction between lying and true, um, it is really uh, evident in her life. And that's been a great contribution to our marriage that, we just don't live with pretense. Uh, she won't allow it, <laughs> even though I might be um, tempted to um, want to talk about the issues or the concepts involved. Uh, we just don't live with um, any buried uh, truth. And I really attribute that to Alice's sensitivity to that and discernment of that. So that's been a great gift to me in helping me grow and being able to respond to her. Mm. I'm I, <clears throat> I'm so thankful that Bob is so affirming about that because it really is important to me. And I'm thinking about one relationship, a difficult relationship. We were a friend going through a difficult relationship, and we had a long breakfast together. And afterwards, he said, "Oh, I feel like I just had a root canal," and that was because he was talking to me, and you know, I kept digging deeper and deeper. Yes, and Bob invites me to do that. Um, but I was thinking this morning, I can't imagine growing older without the help of the Enneagram. And I can't imagine our marriage without the help of the Enneagram. Mm. And I think um, for me with Bob, in recent years, I mean, when we retired, when he retired and we moved to Colorado, we started spending a lot of time together. Obviously, that happens. And I'm noticing and I think validating all three of Bob's, I mean, his main space is a five, but then he's obviously very influenced by the number seven and the number eight. Um, my perspective is that can be for better or worse, even though usually it's in one direction or the other direction. And when Bob, he's been writing this blog and I'm always uncomfortable during the week when he's writing the blog. I mean, he's, taken the elevator up to his head. And then early on, he was asking me what I thought about the blog. 
And, you know, I didn't really like it because he just was talking about all these political ideas and he wasn't getting to the heart of things. There we go to the heart of things. So there he, and so he'd give me a blog and, you know, he'd say, and I would say to him, is this compliments only? Because if he really wants my feedback on it, I probably, it won't be compliments only. And he's very gracious. He want, really wants my feedback. But now he doesn't give them to me to read because it's just not my cup of tea. And I read them when they're all done. I want to know what's going out there. But I know I can't get in Bob's head. I mean, I have trouble getting in my head. And so the Enneagram, I think, has helped me be gracious toward myself and gracious toward him. And then all of our marriage, Bob has always wanted to travel more, go to more parties, have more fun, go watch people having fun. And it struck me recently, that's the slice of the number seven mm. in his temperament. And when I realized that, I thought, oh, well, that's okay. And most of our marriage, he's traveled about a third of the time, at least a third of the time. And I said the other night, that was really good for our marriage because <laughs> He could go out and have dinner with people, have fun, socialize, and I could be home reading, reading my novel. Right. <laughs> the number eight piece, um, he's, I see him becoming a leader in a new context in life. Hmm. He's now president of our HOA. Um, and, and I love all of that. I mean, the Enneagram has just helped me say, yeah, that's who Bob is. And I love him. And I like the things that are different. And, um, I'm glad. I'm glad we're married. I think it's going to work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it is. Well, I want to jump over to the new book, Aging Faithfully. We'll we'll keep integrating some uh, Enneagram work with it. This is a wonderful new book, everybody. The Holy Invitation of Growing Older, Aging Faithfully. Uh, so, uh, and this book drops when? Well, it's supposed to be November 9th. But you know all those cargo ships that are off oh, the shore of California? I'm not real sure that the book isn't on one of those ships. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, we hear that it's supposed to be on time, and we'll just hope that it is. So I, I mentioned earlier that this book is timely for me. I got a call last week. Uh, on Thursday that my 93-year-old mother who lives in assisted living in um, Pennsylvania, you know, she's um, perhaps on what my brother calls her final approach, uh, and which I think is, is well put. Um, and so, um, and of course, of course, that triggers in me my own thoughts of mortality, watching my mother uh, move closer to death. And, um, and so your book was a comfort and a guide, you know, and it was, it was, um, helpful both for me as I look at the, the years ahead and also understanding my mother, you know? So what would you want younger listeners to know about the hearts, the minds, and the souls of their aging parents, their uncles, their aunts, their mentors, you know, how can they best understand and relate to them? Well, I read my book. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, they never give up the promotion, do they, Anthony? <laughs> I, I, I think it. anytime we hear someone else's experience, um, it helps us understand those we love better. And that book is the most personal I've ever written. I mean, it was right in the midst of 
processing all of this myself. Um, the, the one place where I came at the end of the book where I was talking about how to companion an older friend, hmm. it's really, I, I don't want to say this in an off-putting way, but it's really a lot like spiritual direction, hmm. which I love. And in spiritual direction, what, and I've been a spiritual director for 25 years, and the Enneagram and spiritual direction have changed my life, the two, mm. of, the two of them. And what's happening in a spiritual direction relationship is the director is trying to help the other person um, understand and embrace what's going on inside of them. Mm. And so in a negative way, the last thing we'd want to do is come to an older person and say, well, I'm sure you're feeling this way or that way. And, and here are the answers. Um, one book that does this from a medical perspective is Being Mortal. Um, and when I was reading that, and he was just, uh, I can't pronounce his name, Atul, I, I, I don't know it, Gwande, I don't know what to, I can't pronounce his name, so I shouldn't do that. But um, he was talking about conversations with his father, and he's a doctor. And the, the way he was talking to his father about his father's medical needs and physical experiences were absolutely parallel to the way I talk with people in spiritual direction. Mm. It was like, tell me more about this. And what's the most important thing for you in life right now? And what's the most important thing in these remaining months that you have if there's been a terminal diagnosis? So it's, I think we've, when we love, when we listen very well to people, we love them mm. and love heals. Now, it's a different kind of healing. It's not a healing from physical death, but we can be a healing presence to our parents. Well, our parents are gone now, but I wish I had been a better healing presence with mm. them. You, you talk about the aging process as a holy process. And uh, what, what does that how would you describe that to people? Well, when I was in my late 50s, I guess, it dawned on me that, well, first of all, it dawned on me that I was getting older. And then I thought, you know, this is all part of God's plan. For those of us who do get older, it's a, this season of aging is part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. So part of God's plan, well, first of all, I don't want to resist it. Um, and I don't want to just hang it up. I want to understand what is what is God offering in the aging process. And when I wrote the book, I was just astounded to discover how much God is offering. Mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, I think he invites us to focus on the difference between productivity and fruitfulness. Mm -hmm. And most of our life we have been productive and that's i'm really glad i mean i'm glad for myself that people have been productive and i'm glad i could be productive but as we get older we don't have the opportunity um we don't have the energy and people don't necessarily want us to be productive in the same ways so if you take that if that piece diminishes a little bit then i think we're left with the freedom to focus on the fruits of the spirit you know, love, joy, peace, long suffering. I mean, many people say that older people are a peaceful presence. And I think that's, if that happens, that's the fruit of the spirit. And when we love people, um, which for me often means listening, then that's the fruit of the spirit. Mm. And 
I have so much more opportunity to do that now than I ever did when I was busy getting school lunches and planning play dates and taking kids to college. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought up the, I have it actually in my notes here to talk about productivity versus fruitfulness, because in, though I know many people in this space, I'm, I'm, I'm very wary around the obsession with productivity that is here, to, like in the present world, like there are books after books after, you know, it's just all about getting more done, getting it done more efficiently. Uh, and, uh, you know, I sort of maybe as a four myself, I, I, I sort of look at it and I think, boy, that getting more done doesn't really seem to help people plumb the depths of who they are. Not that's my interest. Right. But but I think all of us should have some measure time space for self-reflection and for uh, understanding uh, who we are. Um, and I do think that um, we can begin to think about pr fruitfulness much earlier in life than mm -hmm. than even in our later years. I think that people are too obsessed with getting things done. Uh, and it's and I also would say that I think it's a defense against having to do inner work. It's mm -hmm. it's the fear that drives productivity is a great antidote or a great drug against having to do inner work. Uh, and so I love that the, the, the contrast between productivity and fruitfulness. Mm. Another word for productivity it, for some people might be just plain busyness. Yes. Um, and what you're saying, our, our culture um, wants us to be able to be busier and be more productive. I mean, there, there are articles about how to multitask. Mm -hmm. Until the articles came out and said, oh, sorry, multitasking really doesn't help you get more done. But I'm, I mean, that's, that's one little piece about getting older that has really, I mean, getting older is a transformational experience. And that's something for me that has really transformed. I no longer multitask when I read scripture. So I, I mean, I started out saying, okay, I can't read all the commentaries about this passage. Well, wait a minute. I can't really read the whole passage. Well, let's not even do a whole paragraph. And I am really one verse a day now. And I, I sit in quiet literally until some piece of scripture, either through something I'm reading or just in my mind, just kind, kind of lights up for me. And I think this is the word of the Lord for me today. And that, I mean, all my inductive Bible studies and all the commentaries I read and all the meetings, those were all, I couldn't do this now if I hadn't had all that information. But right now, that's a piece of being older. I'm not multitasking with scripture. Mm. Really great. Mm -hmm. Really great. So you write about the importance of self-awareness on the spiritual journey. And I was thrilled because, you know, self-awareness is a major theme in our work at the Typology Institute. Um, and of course, I get resistance from people of faith because they, they're concerned that that self-awareness equates to navel-gazing. And, uh, and I would argue as a therapist that I oftentimes think that uh, just saying, you know, keep all your focus on Jesus, stop thinking about yourself is a defense. And, you know, religion is a great defense against inner work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this, this sort of obsession with external... Well, let me even say something maybe a little controversial here. You know, Protestantism is theologically very muscular. You know, it's a very must, and, and, and it's, 
it's, it's a very masculine theology. And I would also say that it's a very externally focused theology, right? It's all about the mission. It's all about, you know, God forbid, crusades. It's all about other people and winning other people. You know what I'm saying? And then there's, unlike the Eastern Orthodox in, in the Catholic world, where there is also maybe a little bit more balance on the uh, in terms of self-reflection, right? Understanding the heart, desires, you know, that language can be very foreign to the Protestant world. And so I've had pushback, right? It's like, well, self-awareness, you know, psychobabble, this and that. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, like, like, as you mentioned in the book, the John, and I mentioned it in the road back to you, that John Calvin quote, you know, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. These are, this is a very important, I mean, I mean, I hope it's a, it's a, for many people, it's a huge paradigm shift in their lives when they begin to, to make the journey of turning inwardly with wisdom, right? So why is, why is self-awareness so important on the, on the spiritual journey? And um, how do you attain it? Okay, let me answer the question just before those two questions that came to my mind as you okay. were talking. I mean, what is, is there any biblical precedent for changing our mind about something we're so sure about, like self-awareness is selfish or navel-gazing or whatever? And I've been very taken recently with the story in Acts 10 about Peter, and he had the dream or the vision, and the sheep came down, and he was told to eat unclean meat. And this happened three times, so this wasn't like a passing thing. And Peter's response was, oh, Lord, I have never done that. And I think that's the way some people would feel about self-awareness. Like, this is selfish. And I, I climbed the stairs. I was going to an appointment up in the, the third floor in this old building around the corner here. And um, I got up to the top of the stairs, and the receptionist was there, and I was huffing and puffing and um, I just said, well, I've never gotten old before. I didn't know how hard that would be to get up the stairs. And she said, well, you just need to keep climbing. And I, thought, I, I thought, I think I'm going to write a book about that. <laughs> 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 but that is, and a lot of times Christians feel like it's being selfish to think about yourself. Um, so of the practical answer for me um, in your question is going back again to the daily examine which is not looking at all the things we've done wrong and confess. I mean, it may possibly be, but as I understand the daily exam, it's looking back over the day or the afternoon or even a week and saying, when did I feel closest to God? And when did I feel the most distant from God? And then when was I the most loving? And when did I experience God's love the most? And I, we do start seeing patterns. Hmm. I mean, to apply this to the Enneagram, I have to, this is a little embarrassing, but I'm kind of excited about it too. I feel close to God when I rearrange the pictures in our living room. I mean, I love the color. I love the texture. Mm -hmm. I love the design. And so there's sometimes if I'm really out of it, I just think I need to go hang a picture up. <laughs> so it's that practical and it's mm -hmm. i wanted to know as i got older what would it be like to know that god was with me and i think i have a much greater sense that god is with me when i have noticed the things that i love um, in terms of self-awareness mm -hmm. and i'm Gosh, pretty quick good. to notice the bad things 
So possibly somebody else in a different space on the Enneagram. But I, I think all the spaces experience self-awareness in different ways. Maybe for some people it is more negative, and that's a good thing. If I could add just a, a bit to your controversy, Ian, I think theologically Protestants have so endorsed and embraced the Great Commission mm-hmm. at the exclusion of the Great Commandments. Ooh. And the Great Commandments of loving God and neighbor are much more self-reflective in terms of the soul and the relationship where the Great Commission is so much more conquest or moving external and i think we need a greater balance to understand both our external worlds but our internal worlds as well and um that i think has been more a matter in eastern uh, thought and as well as catholicism but um at least that's been very helpful to me yes. just to think of what it means to love god and neighbor as myself and that helps me understand what's going on inside and of course, that is the balance of contemplation and action. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. it, you know, yeah. the active life is important, right? Um, but the contemplative life is equally as important. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we're overly active uh, to the detriment, if you will, of the contemplative life, we might become smug, self-righteous uh, people who are trying to fix the world and, you know, without any contemplative life to balance it. If we're too contemplative and not active enough, then we can become too self-interested and, you know, so heavenly minded then to be of no earthly good. Right. And so there, there, there has to be this constant correction. You know, am I am I holding both in the tension that they they need to be held in? So I, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly on um, but what you both have said. So how, just kind of as we come to the close of our conversation, how can you use the Enneagram as you move into later years, as you, as you grow older? You want to answer that one? I'm talking too much, but that would be our 50 years. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm good about that. Um, I, I mentioned before, I don't think I could have, Grown, I could. I, it would have been very difficult to age faithfully without the gifts that the Enneagram has given to me. Mm. A lot of it has to do with self-awareness. Um, the Enneagram helps me. I mean, one of one of the gifts, one of the invitations of getting older is learning to be still. Um, I kind of like the word stillness in addition to silence. I mean, there's so much, you know. I'm assuming that I don't even I don't even know how to be still, right? I mean, that's that's the number four in me. That I'm, but I'm getting better about that. So, in the stillness, I can be aware of. In all honesty, where I would start is how hard it is for me to believe that God loves me. Mm. So there's sometimes I just sit down in the morning and I just I just want to remember. You know, God loves me just the way I am today. And I'm really tired and I can't think of any good Bible verse. And I'm busy today. I mean, that would be a typical warning. But because I know that because of the self-awareness that the Enneagram has given me, I know how important it is to sit in stillness, even with that disease. Um, Until I... I can't even tell you when I'm done. <laughs> you know, right. until somehow, somehow I know that I am done. Um, and the Enneagram certainly helps me emphasize the things that I know are part of my giftedness. And I have 
I don't have very much energy anyway. And as I get older, I have less and less energy. And so when you start doing things that you're not gifted to do, that is so energy draining. Mm. So I feel free to do the things I love to do and that I do well. Um, I think it's made the Enneagram has helped me be more merciful. Older people can be, my dad was a real curmudgeon. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I, I feel sad that we didn't have a closer relationship. But I think the Enneagram has allowed me to be more merciful to people. Um, I mean, there are people who live on our street that maybe I'm not particularly drawn to. And I just think, well, that's okay. They're just an Enneagram number such and such. <laughs> you know? and I'm okay with that. I mean, mm-hmm. Okay. When you were saying that, um, uh, another book I always recommend to people who are beginning a journey of self-reflection is, of course, uh, Henry Nouwen's book, uh, The Prodigal Son. And um, right. It's great. I can see you nodding your head up and down because it is it is such a wonderful book. And I, I, I just remember how moved I was because I'm a four when the when he described the 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 summit of the spiritual journey as being not becoming the prodigal son, but becoming the father. Mm. And, you know, we tend to think, oh, no, you know, the goal is you rushing home to God. You know, it's yes, but ultimately you don't want to get stuck in the prodigal son mode for the rest of your life. The, to become merciful, to become the one who blesses, uh, to be the one who welcomes home the prodigal rather than being the prodigal, um, the one who extends mercy to the resentful uh, older son. This is the role of the father, you know, and to become that. And I hear in your self-description, not that you're saying this about yourself, but what I hear from you is that you have begun to embody that older father, mother in the world, uh, giving blessing and being merciful. Um, Bob, I want to close with you. What has been for you uh, how would you talk about how the Enneagram can help people in their older years? Well, as a number five, that um, my compulsion is to uh, avarice or greed. Uh, corrective has been to practice generosity, mm-hmm. both financially. I practice giving higher tips to people. I mean, just as a practical reminder to give out and not just to keep in. Mm. Um, but also letting go of control. Um, I think it's Parker Palmer that says, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about how you pass the baton to a younger generation, which I think is important. But he uses the phrase, sometimes it's good just to join the orchestra, mm. <laughs> to be mm. part and not have to be in control, but be present, be available to people. And I have found my availability is something that's just been a real gift to, to practice that and to share. Um, I was putting together an agenda for our HOA meeting. I was able to think through all the things we needed to do. And I thought of our vice president and I thought he would really like to be part of this. And so I just sent him a draft and say, what do you think of this? And he he just loved it. I don't think I would have done that 10 years ago, Mm, mm. Uh, but just, uh, again, letting go and being available, connecting with people. Um, there's a wonderful imagery and, Ezekiel, the prophet, the end of his years in Ezekiel 47. I won't go through the whole story, but he winds up in this flow of water to the New Jerusalem. 
And as this water flows, there's healing, there's fruitfulness, there's um, a sense of God's blessing. And that's the picture I try to have in my mind as number five. How can I be part of that river? Not how can I control the river or how can I decide where the river goes, but to be part of the river of God's blessing um, to people that I'm mm. connected with and to be generous in that context. Right. So good. Well, um, Bob, Alice, what a, what a delight. This has just been um, a wonderful, enriching conversation. And I want to encourage everybody to go out, get a copy of Aging Faithfully, The Holy Invitation of Growing Older by Alice Freiling. And if you just go to Amazon right now, I'm sure you could just pre-order that book, of yeah. course. And uh, for those of you who would like to know, Alice Freiling, F-R-Y-L-I-N-G. Alice, do you have a website, too? do it's alicefryling.com great peace and every good thing to both of you and uh i, I again i would say this has been a a, a life-giving conversation for me and your book was really a, a wonderful also conversation starter just yesterday my wife and i went for uh, a walk uh we walk together you know many times during the course of a week and i we began to talk about growing older and what is it that is important to us? And uh, where is it that we want to spend our time? You know, we were, Anthony, we were talking about how we would rather um, uh, spend our, our, our resources not on cars, but experiences. You know what I mean? Or on the home, particularly experiences with our kids. So we are going to Portugal with all of our kids in, in June. And, but to me, that's just a whole lot better than buying a leather couch. You know, like, like that just seems to me like a much better plan. And, but that also is this intentionality of saying, okay, we're getting older. Where do we want to place uh, our, our time, our emphasis, the things that matter to us? Well, again, it, and a lot of that was just triggered by reading the book. And so, I mean, mission accomplished, Alice. I mean, fantastic. Uh, just a delight. Let me just say one thing is, you know, with the book that I love the subtitle, which I did not write. Nav Press wrote it for me. The Holy Invitation of Growing Older. And I think that's what you're reflecting that like, wow, this is a very, this is a time of invitation from God. It's not a time. It is a time of diminishment, but it's a time of spiritual invitation. And yes. I think in my soul, I do a little happy dance when I realize that. <laughs> good, good. Well, listen, Typology listeners, Aging Faithfully, The Holy Invitation of Growing Older by Alice Freiling. Her wonderful husband, Bob, has been with us and brought so much uh, additive wisdom. And as always, uh, I close with the words, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time, friends. 